0: Hey, you like making great money, right? You sound like Chico Marx when you say, Hey, you like a great money. Hey, eh? boss. Well, you got to get the book with uh, horses in it. (laughs) And then you get the book with the riders.
1: (laughs) You're picking a subpar Marx Brothers movie. Yes.
0: Yes, we all like making good money, Gil. What's your point? Oh, I I have none. Okay. Okay, here's a really cool opportunity I had to share with you. Uh Uh-huh. Driving with Uber. Uber's that popular smartphone app that connects riders with drivers. Ah, yes. I take an Uber a bunch. I love them, and in chatting with the different drivers, some of them have really interesting stories to uh, say as to why they drive with Uber. Now that's unusual because you usually don't like it when people yeah, t- when yeah. people talk I to you. I usually go shut up. I'm in <laughs> show business and I'm above you. <laughs> <laughs> no, they love being their own boss. Yeah, the- I I I love being my own boss. Then I can make a joke that offends me and fire myself. Absolutely, and <laughs> cut out the middleman. <laughs> <laughs> and that still may happen. Uh, Also, I hear they make great money. They do. Uh, They do. It's easy
1: to start, where all you need is a car and a license. Now, you have one of those things.
0: Now, yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. It's one of them around here. I don't know what. And driving with Uber is is great if you need flexibility. Or if you're a parent, like you are. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) because you're working around the family schedule and stuff. Or students. Right, that's right. They can make money in between classes.
1: It's true. Now's the prime time to cash in driving with Uber, people. You'll thank me. You'll thank Gilbert for telling you guys how to get paid every week. And Gilbert himself could be getting into your car. In fact, he probably will be because he doesn't have a license.
0: Uh, Yes, yes. (laughs) I could be getting in your car. I, I don't know if that's a drawback. Maybe I should say, hey, I promise I won't get into your (laughs) car. That's even better. And then more people will sign up. That's even
1: more appealing. Now, you've (laughs) got a car and you've got a license. Not you, Gil, but the people I'm talking to. Put them both to work for you and start earning serious life-changing money today. You sign up to drive with Uber. Visit drivewithuber.com. That's drivewithuber.com. Gil, you're a celebrity. You're a famous person. You need protection.
0: Yes. Yes, because a lot of people uh, see my show and (laughs) want me dead afterwards. (laughs) Including some collaborators. Yes. (laughs) Well,
1: I want to tell you about a security camera that's going to change your life. Foscam. If you're tired of not knowing what's happening when you're not around, you get the Foscam C1. Uh, It's an HD 720p indoor Wi-Fi security camera. Now, with the Foscam C1, Gil, you can view the video stream from your computer, your tablet, your mobile phone, through their free app, which is available on the Google Play Store and the iTunes App Store. Well, you can't do any of those things. No, but but, We're talking to somebody who understands basic technology. Yeah, like a
0: three-year-old would have to explain it. A three-year-old needs personal security. And they're like small and versatile with a super wide viewing angle. That's true. With HD
1: 720, as we said, 720p video feed resolution, um, also up to 26 feet of night vision, motion detection alerts go right to your phone via text or email so Dara could see them and alert you, Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, optional cloud service, Gil, for secure storage of your recordings off-site, two-way audio. And a 60-second setup. It's very easy to set this camera up. It's
0: like, basically, my kids would have to operate it and tell me if someone's uh, coming after What
1: are children me? for? <laughs> the Foscam C1 security camera is $69.99, and you can get $10 off per camera if you use the code GILCAST,
0: G-I-L-C-A-S-T-1. Your purchase will also get you a lifetime support. And 30-day money-back guarantee and a one-year warranty on every purchase.
1: It's a great deal. Just go to www.foscam.us/c1 and you'll be linked to the C1 Amazon page where you can use the code Gilcast. That code is G I L C A S T one and get ten dollars off each C1 that you buy. That's Foscam, F-O-S-C-A-M dot U-S slash, the letter C and the number one.
0: Foscam. Watch what you love anywhere. Hi, I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santopadre. Our guest today is a writer, producer, director, and comedian who is responsible for some of the most successful and profitable movies of the last 15 years, including The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Funny People, and the recently released Trainwreck. He's also produced hit films like Superbad, Anchorman, Pineapple Express, and Bridesmaids. Television credits include everything from The Ben Stiller Show to Freaks and Geeks to the award-winning HBO series Girls. I'm running out of room on this card already. His new book is called Sick in the Head, Conversations About a Life and Comedy. We're proud to say he's a fan of this very podcast. Please welcome a genuine show business mogul, And the second youngest guest we've ever had on the show. The other one before that was 80. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Judd Apatow.
2: I know. I was thinking that it's weird that I'm on the show due to youth, and uh, I was like, how's my career going? (laughs) Usually it's a look back
0: Uh, This is like getting on the Joe Franklin show Right at the end
2: But I am a big fan And I like to listen to podcasts before I go to bed And and a lot of times I like to go to sleep to podcasts Uh, It's like having friends in my ear But you laugh too loud And so it doesn't really work (laughs) So I'll listen to you for a bit And then I have to switch to like You know uh, on points on NPR or something <laughs> where they're talking about Afghanistan to actually fall asleep. But you can't go to sleep with Danny Bonaducci telling a blowjob story. No, <laughs> you can't. You
0: can't. <laughs> it gets you too excited. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, now, am I mistaken? Someone said this is, you know, with your movie Trainwreck, this is the first publicity. You're going for it. This is it, the
2: first interview I've ever yes. <laughs> I didn't get on any of the shows. Yes, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a massive campaign, and it started with taking the head <laughs> beforehand. And it is, there is a moment where people are like, seriously, you need to stop doing press at this point. But when you're doing a movie with a new star like Amy, and you're up against you know, Marvel movies and all the giant movies of the summer, you have to do a crazy amount of press, because I feel like, If I do 20 interviews, most people see one. And then there's like a a small amount of comedy fans who see a lot and get irritated. But for the most part, people will have heard or seen one thing.
0: Now, we were talking before you got here, Frank and I, that in your book, you say that some comedian wanted to see your dick. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) And he's not going to tell us who it is.
2: That's true. And And it wasn't Gilbert. (laughs) What happened was I interviewed this one comedian, and we we're in a restaurant in the village. And I I go downstairs. There's like a basement bathroom, and then suddenly he's at the stall next to me, and then he turns and goes, "Hey, let me let me see your dick." And I was like, "What? I'm, I'm 16 years old, and no one had ever seen it at that point." And he's like, "Come on, let me see it." And I'm like. Why? And uh, he's like, I have a bet with another uh, comedian that I can get you to show it to me. I just want to win the bet. Uh, and I, I don't know if I've rewritten history, but in my head, <laughs> I think he may have also said, and there's another section to the bet. But I'm not sure if I just dis- assume that. And, uh, and I go, no, what are you talking about? No. Which is amazing because I loved comedians so much. It's a wake (laughs) up call. It's amazing I didn't
0: just blow him right there.
2: (laughs) Like, I'm really proud of myself as a young person that I I didn't. You should restrain him by by showing him it.
0: Now, please tell us who it
2: was. (laughs) Well, you obviously could figure it out in like five minutes. But I, I can't say it although Oh, oh we'll tell us later that person off the probably mic. Probably is doing time somewhere. But it, it isn't it, a long journey for you to figure it out, Gilbert. Let's is, just say that.
0: Is it Gallagher?
2: <laughs> or Gallagher too? <laughs> to hit
0: my balls with a
2: mallet? <laughs> was it Yakov Shmernov? <laughs> I can guarantee you it was not Yakov or, or Gallagher.
0: Was it Jackie Vernon? <laughs> He's like, uh, this, is, uh, this is this uh, is me look? in the car, yeah. uh, <laughs>
2: and uh, here's us uh, picking up a hitchhiker, and uh, here's me hitchhiking.
0: Here's some slides of your penis. <laughs>
2: How many people do Jackie Vernon yes. judge? <laughs> When I used to go to the Laugh Factory in 1985, when I first moved to California, he was still doing stand-up at the Laugh Factory.
0: Oh, my God. He used to do the
2: slideshow, right? Yes. He used to have the clicker. The yeah.
0: yeah. Here's a slide of me going in the Lincoln Tunnel. Here's a slide two days later of me leaving the Lincoln <laughs> exactly.
1: Tunnel. I'll contemporize it a little bit for our guests, for our listeners. He was the voice of Frosty the Snowman. Oh, yes. Jackie Vernon.
0: Yes. Yeah. I did not know that.
1: Yes. A little worthless
0: trivia. So, when he asked to see your penis... Are we going to do an hour on it? Yes, yes. (laughs) Yes. Did he go, can I see your penis? (laughs) Ivan!
2: Well, then it would have been you.
1: Yes. (laughs) Would have been... Let's talk about Norman Lloyd. And train. We'll talk a, little, a lot about Trainwreck, but let's yes. talk about... Uh, is he 100, 100,
2: 101? He's 100. He's 101, I Bless believe, him. in October or November. And I was uh, talking to Ed O'Neill, and Ed O'Neill uh, from Modern Family and many great things said, you need to meet Norman. He lives down the street from me. And at the time, he was 99. And he wow. said, he's you know, so sharp and so funny, you got to go out to lunch with him one day. So I took him out to lunch, and afterwards... I kept saying uh, to my producer, Barry Mendel, should we put him in the movie? Uh, And we just didn't know if you could fly a 99-year-old man. (laughs) And and when we had lunch with him, he was so sharp and and hysterical. And then afterwards, we walked him to his car, and he drove himself. And I wanted to see how he drove, and he drove really well. And on the way to see him drive off, he told us, A story about watching Babe Ruth play baseball. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's how you know it's a little scary for him to get in the car. Um, (laughs) But I was also impressed that his car was not in a simple place to get to, and he fully remembered uh, how to find it. So after a few months, I said to Norman, can you do this? Like, could you go to New York? And he's like... Of course, I can do it. (laughs) And so he flies to New York by himself. You would think someone would attend him. No, he just, the whole thing's solo. I go uh, and call him the next day, and I said, how did it go, Norman? Everything okay? And he said, everything went perfectly Although it took me 3 hours to figure out how to shut the lights in the room.
0: hilarious.
2: <laughs> now this is a man he, that worked with everybody.
0: He worked with Chaplin and Buster Keaton. And
1: Hitchcock and Sabatier. Yes. Oh sure. Yeah. Everybody.
2: And he is so funny and he he turned 100 and in oh, it's almost a year since he turned 100, he seems sharper. And, and even stronger than ever, we did a show at the Wiltern Theater promoting Trainwreck where we all did stand-up. And I had him come out and introduce one of the comedians, and he was riotously funny. And in fact, in the movie, th- I don't know if the joke even works that he's so old because he doesn't look old.
1: Right. It's weird with Colin. <laughs> I saw the movie Friday. Yes. It's weird with him and Colin in the same yes. senior center. Exactly. In the same recovery center or retirement center.
2: But he's a great guy and, and so fun. There's a great video online of... Method Man explaining the concept of the Wu-Tang Clan to Norman.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, what was the show he was in? St. Elsewhere. St. Elsewhere. Saint Elsewhere. Saint Elsewhere. Yeah.
2: yeah, and he was yeah. also in Dead Poet Society. He was He's in the, a million things. The guy who and and ran this the place. leads me
0: to my next question. Was it Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton who asked you to see <laughs> <a> your <day? laughs> Well, it was Chaplin, but he did it in a more sentimental way.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> You'll have to hook us up with Norman for the show, because he's just, you know, he'll be our, what, our fourth youngest
2: guest? Yes. Oh, he my him. God. Yeah. <laughs> he's incredible. And what's fun about Norman is you wonder if he's just running the same 20 stories. Uh-huh. Uh, but then I took him out to lunch the day before we started shooting Trainwreck. I, I called Mike Nichols, and I said, let's go out to lunch, and I'm going to bring a surprise. And I brought Norman to lunch, because I thought that they would have things they could talk about that other people wouldn't remember. And they talked for three hours. Wow. And what was wild was I got really tired, and they didn't. Wow. <laughs> like, I was exhausted and running out of gas and just <laughs> sugar crashing, and they were just going and going. It was, it was pretty fantastic. He's perfect for us, Norman Lloyd.
0: Oh, my God. Because
2: yeah. before we turned
1: the mics on, I was saying to Judd, we've had now four guests that have worked with Keaton.
0: Oh, it's uh, Paul,
1: Paul Dooley, sure. Uh, uh, James, James Caron, the Caron. great wow. character actor, and uh, who was the Frankie Avalon in a beach in a beach bling, uh, bingo oh, that's movie. Right.
2: Well, Norman played tennis every week or multiple times a week with Chaplin. So if you ask Norman about what Chaplin thought about anything from that period, he knows. Like, what did Chaplin think of the Red Scare? <laughs> what did Chaplin think about this? <laughs> oh, wow. And he remembers just his basic viewpoint on things. We got to call him up. Other things about
1: Trainwreck I wanted to ask you about. And uh, tell us how it came together because you heard Amy
2: on Howard Stern. I was uh, driving to work. I heard Amy and she was telling stories about her relationships and a lot of stories about her dad who has MS. And they were really dark stories and she told them in a really warm, hilarious way. And it sounded like a very interesting relationship. And I just sat in the car. You know, when you sit in the car and you don't get out because something's so interesting. And I thought... Oh, she's a storyteller. Like, I've seen her stand-up, and she's really funny. But when she tells a really long story, she's very gifted. So I asked her if she ever thought about writing a movie, and that led to Trainwreck. You know, Gilbert, most of my scouting happens over the radio. You know, I'll listen oh, right. to, like, Fibber, uh, Mickey, and Molly and try to book them, and they're like, they're dead.
0: Yeah, uh, you listen, that's our problem. you listen to The Shadow. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking for new comedians. See, now, I've done Howard Stern 15,000 right. times. never right. once. I never called yeah. you. I yeah. never called you. I can't even get a Chuckles Comedy Club.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Chuckles in Mineola?
0: Yes. Yeah. That's the first place
2: I ever did stand-up was Chuckles in really? Mineola. No. Joe Bolster was hosting. I know it and, well. uh, and that's where I used to do it, Chuckles and uh, Governors and Eastside. But Chuckles was the first place.
0: Okay, now this brings me to my other most important topic me. Yes. Uh, when was the first time you saw me? I used to
2: go see <laughs> you uh, in the city, but I, I definitely saw you at Caroline's twice in around 84, 85. We used to go to Caroline's. The old Caroline's to see in see Hell's you. Kitchen. Oh, yeah, and I remember yeah. I went with like 10 people and we yeah. all came into the city to see you. And it was unbelievably great. It was one of the great shows. And the Carolines was the only place that would let underage people in to see the show because it was a a supper club. And so I remember I saw Seinfeld there. I saw Pee Wee Herman do a stand-up act. It was the only tour he ever did as a stand-up. And everybody, Charles Fleischer, Howie Mandel, that was my favorite place to go. You
0: know what I remember about a story about Pee Wee Herman at Carolines when it was on it was like in the twenties at one point, and they—you had to walk across the clock. I hate those when yes. you got to walk to go to the men's room. Yes, you got to <laughs> squeeze through the audience, and you know he couldn't keep his head down and just hide because he's got like you see you sees Pee Wee Herman yes. from ten miles away, so he used to keep a jar with him. <laughs> in the dressing room oh, to pee in. That's an old yeah. Saturday
2: Night Live uh, love technique, it. which is all those writers uh, pee in jars when <laughs> <laughs> they're working. why Bell
1: used to be under the table yes. that, during update handing jokes up. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> couldn't go to the bathroom. <laughs>
2: But I was always a giant fan, Gilbert, and, and followed uh, your career very closely, always. And re- I remember when you were on Saturday Night Live and, like, being fascinated by the new cast and, and then the Alan Thicke show. I oh, remember, yeah. It comes remember up a trying, lot on I remember, show. I the Oh, my gosh. You with Alan Thicke. That was an incredible interview with Alan Thicke. He was riotously funny.
1: He was. <laughs> he was. He was giving us the bums rush.
2: He had yeah. to go, so I think it was he was only forty. But he's genuinely minutes. really, <laughs> yeah. really funny, and I was very excited about that joke. Right when I went to college, I was eighty-five. Right. Oh yes, I used to. I used to watch with that. And no, Bell-
0: no, my my show, my uh, think of, oh, of, of the night, night. Oh, thick of the night. Yeah, that with, would be about eighty five.
1: Yeah.
2: Belzer was on there with him. Yeah, yeah. And so, what what went wrong with that show? He, Everything. He talked about it <laughs> yeah. like he wasn't good, but yet he's so funny talking about it not being good. You think, well, why weren't you like that on the show?
0: He was very funny on the podcast, but yeah. boy. Everything that could be wrong with a TV show yeah. wrong was wrong with a He was self deprecating
1: on the podcast. Yeah. So maybe he should have been a little bit
2: more done a little more of that on It the reminded show. me of an interview I just watched with George Bush. And now that he's not the president, he's kind of funny and cool. Like he dropped all the effort oh, yeah. to yeah. present himself. Yeah. And he's actually really engaging to listen to well, in a way that he I wasn't. I always
0: thought that with Bob Dole. Yes. When he was running for president, he was the mean old mm-hmm. man down the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, then when he st- he wasn't running, yes. when he lost the election, he was popping up on sitcoms yeah. and Saturday Night Live. And he said, hey, I like this guy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Obama is the only one who's uh, funny now.
0: Yeah, well, you know, well, Clinton did so the whole thing. So was it Obama
2: thing. who wanted to see your dick?
1: It was not. Yeah. I can guarantee He's you. keep coming back to it. It's now going to be a runner. Speaking of East Side Comedy Club, yes. we'll come back a little back to Trainwreck later. But Eastside Comedy Club was your your mom got a job there, and that was a, that was a, your entree a little bit into uh, yeah my into the parents because uh, you got, were a comedy you were a comedy buff as a kid you were an obsessive.
2: Yeah, my parents got separated, and my parents owned this restaurant on Long Island called Raisins Restaurant, and and Cy or Woodbury, and Rick Messina, the manager of Tim Allen and Drew Carey, he was the bartender. And then when my parents got separated, he ran the East Side Comedy Club and the East End Comedy Club in Southampton. And my mom got a job as the hostess one summer, which I always think is weird because what do you pay the hostess to seat people in a comedy club. This was an adult woman. Yeah. <laughs> what, what What? could he have paid her? And my pa- family, you know, f- for a while, we were very, you know, upper middle class and mm-hmm. and uh, and now I think like my mom took that job just to amuse me because I loved comedy because he could not have given her more than 50 bucks or 75 right. bucks to do that. Uh, I and, remember the East Side Comedy Club. Yeah, East yeah. Side was great. I mean, I then I became a dishwasher there and... What Jerry Cooney used to come in. It was a very like <laughs> night. you could tell right. everyone in the club was coked out of their minds, and I'm like 16, 15 Long years Island old. Long Island celebrities, yeah. All but, the yeah. Long Island celebrities were just yeah. completely out of their minds, uh, and it was Bob Nelson and Rob Bartlett and oh my God, Jim Myers, yeah. and then uh, uh, Eddie Murphy still was coming in at 21 uh, at that time.
0: Eddie, Eddie Murphy, was he still in a comedy team? No, that was when, after he did yeah, the Identical oh, Triplets with so yes. Bob
2: Nelson. and and uh, But Bob Nelson used to tear down the house at that place. And he did a show once a week, and he did a bit where he would turn on the radio, and he would do improvs based on the song on the radio. And it was pretty magnificent as a kid to watch him do that. But I wanted to watch Comedians, and I was a dishwasher. And then I realized, oh, I can't see the show. I'm in the kitchen. So I switched and became a busboy just so I could watch the show. And then all the money I made... I had to spend on the cab to get home.
0: Oh, But my I just God.
2: wanted to be there, so I didn't care. So you basically mm-hmm. broke even. I broke even.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did they at least let you eat people's leftovers? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: And, uh, and so that's, that's when I realized, oh, it'd be great to talk to them. I wanted to talk to them, and I hated that I couldn't talk to them. So there was a radio station in my high school, and I said, oh, maybe I can do a show where I interview comedians... And this is before podcasting or the internet, and I interviewed 45 comics in 1983, 84, and it was all before people made it, so it was Leno and Seinfeld and Riser and... Uh, You're like the uh, young Cameron uh, Crowe in Say Anything. I exactly. didn't say anything,
1: excuse me, in uh, Almost Famous, going around with a yeah. tape recorder.
2: And I wanted to talk to all of them. I talked to almost all the original Saturday Night Live writers and John Candy and. Lorenzo and, Music. And I interviewed Lorenzo <laughs> Music <laughs> yeah. and. Remember him? Yeah, uh, he, he did.
0: Yes, <laughs> and, and, uh, with what's her name, Rhoda. That's right. I just yes. was talking
2: to this woman the other day and she said, she said my dad was Lorenzo Music. And uh, Wow. And. Yeah, I mean, not many people were hunting down Guido Guido Sarducci in those days. (laughs) But there there were no other comedy nerds. There was no one at the school who even knew what I was talking about. There was so little interest in comedy, even though Saturday Night Live was popular. There was no one at school who thought that was a cool thing to do. I was just this weird kid taking three-hour train rides to meet Al Yankovic. (laughs) And some of those interviews... From the '80s are in the book. Yeah, so the in book, the new book. So the book I always talked about putting them out. I didn't know if they were that interesting, and then I said, "Well, maybe if I take some of the old interviews and then combine them with just times I've been interviewed or I've been on panels, and then did just a few new ones, and then I started enjoying doing the new ones." Uh, so I did like Louis and Stephen Colbert and John Stewart and Lena Dunham, and I put it together, and the book has just sold like crazy. I think because it's not just about comedy. All these people talk about how they live their lives and what their journey has been like. So it's uh, an oddly emotional book. And it's the book I wished existed when I was 15 because there weren't any good... Comedy books back in the day. There were, there was like that book Comic Lives, and that was about it. There was Lenny Bruce's the biography, sure. uh, ladies and right, gentlemen, right. Lenny Bruce.
0: What was that book that was out that guy wrote? The Larry Wilde book? Yes. Yo, no, Larry yes. Wilde. Yeah. <laughs> that there shows there, how few books. There were like it's three Larry books. books. No, there weren't even, right.
1: even how to comedy writing yeah. books.
2: Uh, there was nothing. And uh, so no. uh, I, that's why I interviewed comedians. And back then, You know, Seinfeld, maybe he was 27 years old. No one wanted to talk to them. So it wasn't hard to get to them because they weren't doing any interviews because they were just club comics for the most part.
1: It's interesting in the book, too, because it's like a time capsule. You're interviewing Shandling in 84, and he's saying things like, I think I'm going to do a sitcom (laughs) uh, and play myself.
2: Yeah, and Seinfeld, too. And and Leno's talking about how he's not that interested in acting. Right, right, right. and, uh, And the funny thing is that people say, you know, can you put out the audio of them? But the audio is just me with my voice having not cracked and a huge <laughs> yeah. Long Island accent. So it's like, <laughs> so how do you want a joke? <laughs> no, I don't want to touch your penis. <laughs> Why do you want me to let you see my penis?
0: Now, and but you do say in the book that Seinfeld said to you, hey, can I see your dick? <laughs> coming yeah. and Jay Leno said to you tell me I, uh, I read somewhere that you have a can you show it to me no wait Judd does a Leno himself because you, you you, oh, you've okay. you,
2: you've done Leno on television
0: ha
2: <laughs> Am I right? Yeah. I've done that a few times on The Critic. I did that. Yeah, The
0: Critic. Oh! (laughs) Can (laughs) we (laughs) hear (laughs) something?
2: We'll put you on the spot. You know, I I, I, I separate the money. I don't spend the money from The Tonight Show. I just spend the road (laughs) money. (laughs) And Leno was always the nicest to me. I interviewed him when I was 16. I think I interviewed him twice. And then when I started making movies and doing TV, he would have me on The Tonight Show all the time, even when I wasn't doing stand-up, and it was just so nice to me and Leslie the, in, the entire run. I mean, he could not have been uh, greater to us, and I think it's, you know, it, it, that's what's really fun, is I met him when I was a kid, and, and I did The Tonight Show once with, with him and Robin Williams, and it was just a, an amazing thing. And surreal. tonight, I'm doing a stand-up on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, and that's the first time I've done stand-up on The Tonight Show. Wow. So I'm 47, and I finally
0: uh, <laughs> got, got there. <laughs> you finally made The Tonight Show. Exactly. <laughs> it's funny how... Why did... I, 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 it always struck me as odd how many people make Jay Leno into a big villain.
2: I don't get that at all. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think it's because I worked at The Larry Sanders Show. Yeah. And what happened when we were doing the show was everything about Johnny getting pushed out uh, back then... And all the politics of who would replace Johnny, Dave, or Jay. And then all the politics of who was going to take the 1230 slot. And Gary was offered the 1230 slots. And so we always knew that no matter how anyone behaved, behind the scenes, all their reps were trying to get them these jobs. And if you want like Johnny's job, on some level... You're signaling maybe Johnny should leave now. Like, everyone is trying to move into the better position. So it always felt like, I don't know, Jay probably wants his job. And if he gets pushed out, he's not thrilled. And if he can get back in, he probably would like to. And then anyone who acts like it's a gentleman's game um, is uh, either incorrect or, uh, you know, not thinking it through. Because it's not a gentleman's game. It is a bloodbath. And that is why the Larry Sanders show was so interesting. And even right now, I'm sure it's a bloodbath for who's going to follow this guy and follow that oh, guy. Yeah. And even though everyone loves each other, and I think now all the talk show hosts really do respect each other. It's, it's, a, it's a war to survive. And I think that's fine. And it doesn't seem that fair that Leno somehow... Uh, is cast as a villain, and I think he's an interesting player, and his choices are fascinating. Yeah. But in their own way, everyone is making a move.
0: Yeah, it was always made like Lena was pushing the other people out. Yeah. And, and well, the, well, the book, was, The Late
1: yeah. Show, tells the story of Jay hiding in the closet. It's sure. just a famous story. It is, you know,
2: We've mean, all hid in the closet yeah. at some point. <laughs> I, I, re- I remember me and Ben Stiller, we pitched a movie to the Rolling Stones. They wanted to do a, a concert film that had comedy in between the songs. It's on one of my here. <laughs> and uh, after the pitch, we left the room, and then Ben stayed with his ear to the door, wanting to listen to the debate. And I kept saying to Ben, like, we're going to get murdered by Keith Richards <laughs> if he gets up to take a piss right now. So... We've all hidden closets.
0: And and there's that um, story that's been around for a while that Jerry Lewis would forget his attache case. I totally believe that. That's the best
2: book ever. King of Comedy about Jerry Lewis is almost as good as... Don Felder from the Eagles. Autobiography. Oh, that, that, yeah. I, I, that's, that's a great yeah. one. And I, I, it's so easy to do now with an iPhone. You could just like press record. Everyone must be terrified. Even if you meet the president, you could have press record on your phone. Oh, yeah. Uh, you can't really say anything anywhere without getting in trouble.
0: It's because, the, yeah, they said that Jerry Lewis would hide a tape recorder in the attache case. <laughs> if this was the old days, I would have had the person... Asking to see
2: my dick and balls on on audio.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: Let's talk a little bit about Gary since
1: you brought up the Larry yes. Sanders show, and and he's a in addition to a friend, he's also a mentor
2: of sorts. Of course, no, yeah. he's the the mentor. I met Gary uh, when I was really young. I was doing stand up, and early on, I, I I I thought, oh, you can make money and pay your rent if you sell jokes to other people. And no one really wanted to do that. Everybody wanted to be a star. So, like, Gilbert, you wouldn't have, like, written jokes for money for somebody else. But I thought, you know, I'm not even that good yet. So if I could make 300 bucks a week selling jokes to George Wallace and Jeff Dunham and Peanut, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Jeff
1: Dunham and Peanut.
2: And so I was, I was writing jokes for different people, and I started writing jokes <laughs> for Tom Arnold. And uh, at, 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 and at one point I wrote Roseanne Barr's... Uh, Act with her, which was really me typing while she came up with amazing jokes. But anyway, Gary Shanley called and asked if I would write the Grammys for him, right when the first Gulf War started. So those war starts, I'm in mm-hmm. the, at the Dallas Improv <laughs> with Kevin Rooney. and
1: Kevin Rooney.
2: <laughs> I get a call, the great Kevin Rooney, yeah, yeah. and big who talent. was also a big mentor to me when I was doing stand-up. He really took the time to help me and give me advice. I like Kevin. He's a funny guy. And And, um, and so I stayed up all night writing Gary jokes for the grammys i must have written 50 60 100 jokes in a night and i sent them to gary because i wanted to be irreplaceable i wanted him to say oh i have to have this guy and gary didn't know anything about music i mean it was it was comical he was about to host the grammys he knew nothing (laughs) one of the jokes i wrote him was uh a lot of people ask why i'm hosting the grammys uh like what do i have to do with music Well, my girlfriend used to do the guy in Uriah (laughs) Heep. And and so so then Gary took all my jokes and used almost none of the punchlines, but he used the setups. Interesting. (laughs) And then he would write a way better joke every single time. And then he let me come to New York, and I was just a kid. And then I wrote the Grammys for him again. And then when we did the Ben Stiller show, he was... One of the guest stars on the pilot, him and Roseanne and Tom, did sketches in the pilot. I always thought that's why our show got picked up, because we had these great guest stars. And when we got canceled, he asked me to write for The Larry Sanders Show.
1: And he taught you a couple of things about writing, you say in the book.
2: Everything about yeah, writing.
1: Yeah. I, I, People he, forget he was a writer, by the way. That he, that, You know, Gil, that he wrote yeah. Sanford and Son. Oh, yeah. and, uh, welcome, welcome, back welcome back,
2: Cotter. Cotter. And, uh, no, he's the, the best. And if you can imagine sitting in a room with Gary... While uh, he's going through a script saying what's wrong with it, every lesson you would ever want to learn about storytelling would happen if you paid attention to why he liked or didn't like a script or a
0: joke in a script. I just paid very close attention. What do you remember in particular? Like stuff that he taught you as far as just making a cohesive joke? Well,
2: I remember... um, He uh, was dating Linda Doucette, who was on the show, and then they were writing an episode about her getting um, asked to be in Playboy, that Hugh Hefner was on the Larry Sanders show and he asked Hank's assistant to be in Playboy. And then as a result of that. that, Hugh Hefner asked Gary's girlfriend to be in Playboy while Gary was dating her. So like the show, as it was being written... And happened started happening in life. Like the blurred realities <laughs> would happen all the time. Or you know, Dana Carvey did a, like, a sketch that was kind of mean-spirited where he did an impression of Gary. And he did this really like whiny Gary character on Saturday Night Live. And he called Gary and, and was apologizing. And Gary said, you know what? Don't worry about it. Let's just do it on the show. And then Gary wrote or had uh, written by the staff, this hilarious episode about Dana Carvey guest hosting and doing this mocking impression of Gary, of Larry. And that's one thing I learned, is the closer you get to the truth, the better the comedy is. And Gary was always coming up with the great original stories, but when things would happen in the office or problems with the actors or problems with anybody, it would weave into the show. And I think after the show ended... I did Freaks and Geeks, and it made me realize, oh, all these little weird things that happen to us are really interesting, and I learned that from watching Gary take moments from his life and finding a way to turn that into The more into personal, fiction. the more universal.
1: Is that what he, yeah, you to say? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Well, you yeah. always said it's about getting to the truth and the core of people, and uh, I, I, there was a psychic once who was on the show, and I asked her to come to the office so we could write an episode about what happens when a psychic goes on the Larry Sanders show. And so how we wrote it is we had her come to the office and talk to us. And based on how we freaked out, that would become the root of a story about how everyone at the show freaks out. And that's how he approached a lot of the show.
0: I I think Larry David used to tell his writers on Seinfeld, uh, just keep a diary of stuff that happens to you during the day. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And But Gary was so funny.
2: I mean, when you would sit with him and he would just sit with a pen punching it up, you have just never seen anything like it. it. It really was stunning. The runs he would go on just in his house on the weekends fixing scenes. And you know, a scene that might be the funniest scene ever on the show, you watch Gary rewrite in like 50 seconds where he, it just came to him. And he's the best. We, I mean, both, I,
1: we both love him. We wish he was working more. We he wish he was did. doing
2: more stuff. He comes in the, and does stand-up. And I do these shows at Largo all the time. Uh-huh. And he comes and does stand-up. And he's as funny as ever.
0: Now, you, I think there's a quote from you that you said, your way of dealing with life is by not dealing with it. Or that was your yes. way until you had kids. Uh, th- well, that's true. I mean,
2: I, my parents weren't religious And they didn't believe in God, but they never talked about it, ever. They never mentioned spirituality. Once I asked to get bar mitzvahed, and they said, you just want the money. And that was it. (laughs) But it was true, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't go to Hebrew school. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, I do a lot of charity work, and I always say, my parents never discussed charity. The concept that you would want to give to other people and take care of other people was never mentioned in our home. All they ever said was, no one said life was fair. You know, there was a lot of, like, we're getting fucked, why would we help anybody else talk? (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, that stuck with me, and I think, uh, you know... I'm always like digging out of that spiritual black hole when like, your family gives you nothing. I wish they hypnotized me into believing something at this point. And you know, I'm trying to like. <laughs> Did your dad leave a book about divorce on the coffee table? Well, that, that was, was just, this just crazy story yeah. where my parents got divorced and it was very toxic. And then one day I saw a book in the house and it was called Growing Up Divorce. <laughs> and, and I read it. It was all about the power dynamics between the husband and his wife and the children and how everyone feels in an ugly divorce. And I never talked to my dad about it. And then, like, two years ago or three years ago, I mentioned it to him. He's like, oh, yeah, I left that out for you. <laughs> uh, I, ho- I hoped you'd read it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but you never asked me if I read it. So you left it out. You didn't follow up. And luckily, I read it. But... You didn't know that I read it. I mean, maybe I just tossed it back on the coffee table. Oh, so he
0: wouldn't even go that far to say, read this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
2: Or to go, hey, remember a month ago I left that book out? <laughs> Do you want to talk about your emotions? I mean, I didn't go to a therapist. or Like, nobody helped me through it. But that became, oddly, the fuel for me wanting to work. That's why I interviewed the comedians. Well, the
1: dedication in your book is, uh, and from mom and dad, your support, and the mental health issues you gave me made all of this possible.
2: Because I was scared to get a job. And I thought, I'm going to start early. If I try to be a comedian starting at 14 or 15, if it takes me 10 years, I'm 25. And I used to think that all the time. Like, it's going to take a while. I'm just going to start early. But that was just a panic at, at being broke.
0: Well, he started super early. I mean, he's yeah. 15. They do. 15. First time I got up on yeah. the stage, I was 15. At which club? At, I, See, now this is weird. I thought it was the bitter end. Uh-huh. My sister says it was somewhere else. My um, father's place. Yes. My <laughs> father's place in Roslyn. <laughs> oh, jeez. I love it.
2: And how soon were you in the city?
0: Oh, God. Um, well, I lived in Brooklyn. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my sister had found out that there was some club that you could yeah. just write your name down and mm-hmm. go on. And uh, so, yeah, just.
2: So, like 16, 17, were you at Catch a Rising Star working? Uh,
0: yeah, no, I first started with all the other places. Like these the improv? Shitty little places. Pips? Oh, yeah. Pips. Oh, Pips, Pips, Hips and Shakespeare. I had like my <laughs> first job. One of my first yeah. jobs at, was at Pips. And I was going to be the opening act, and MC of a show where, and to me they were mm. these were big stars. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> this was like being with Bob Hope and Jack Benny. Lenny Schultz. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. Lenny no Schultz. I wish it was uh, Carl Waxman. Oh wow, yeah. And Adam Keefe. I don't know Adam Keefe. He was most famous for he was an impressionist, and I the highest he ever got was in some, I don't know, potato chip commercial yeah. where he where he was doing a James Cagney imitation.
2: <laughs> Both of those names are new on me. So what year were you working what what years was that?
0: Yeah, oh God. Uh, I think it was like the you know, like I was maybe still sixty nine when oh, wow. I first got up on a stage. And
2: when did people think you were funny?
0: Uh never. <laughs> <laughs> Last week. <laughs> but boy, I remember. I remember catch. I I I passed the audition there, or when when they opened the place. Yeah. And they had the stage on the other side of the room. Yeah. And I remember going to the improv every night when Times Square was a fucking shithouse. Oh, it was terrifying back <laughs> yeah. then. Oh,
2: sure. I yeah. remember people chasing me down at 8th Avenue. Like, it was really a, a, a terrifying place. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I
0: would walk from there to 6th and 42nd to get on their lovely subway back then. The Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast Producer of the Month for August is Kate Jones thank you Kate be just like Kate and get rewarded for supporting our podcast head over to patreon.com slash Gilbert Gottfried for a small amount each month you can get some colossal benefits such as access to new podcast episodes before anyone else, exclusive video hangouts, shout-outs from me on Twitter. I will even read something that you send me, and it'll sound just like this. Go to patreon.com slash Gilbert Gottfried. That's patreon. P a t r e o n dot com slash Gilbert Godfrey. We thank you for your generosity.
2: So, were you there when Pryor was working out a lot uh, in no. those days?
0: No, I uh, not Pryor. I remember uh, Robert Klein. Was he still oh, in
2: the clubs or Klein already out of the club? Like
0: maybe pop in, yeah. But the people who I'd see pop into rarely, yeah. but... I, oh, I remember Gabe Kaplan before oh, yeah. he was famous. It was he funny? <laughs>
2: <laughs> like, honestly, because I've never seen his act. And, and, but yet he was gigantic, so was yeah. he
0: a killer in the
2: clubs? club? Well, and that's I remember
0: he would go up on stage and he'd talk about being in school and there was a guy named Horseshack. Yeah, that all came out of his act, yeah. the Sweat Hog stuff. And, and that... Boy, did yeah. that be all a worked out. Mine yeah. for him.
2: Yeah. Horshack I, did not like being called Horshack.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because
2: I did a sketch with him on a Tom Arnold special, and uh, it was a sensitive area. He didn't... You know, there are certain people, they own that stuff, and they just have fun with it, and other people really do not dig you calling them Horshack. And he, he was of that school.
0: I, I heard Jimmy Walker gets really angry if you ask him to say Dino-Miner. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: Because now it's been like 40 years... <laughs> And you got to be like, I cannot believe I'm still being asked to do it. Yeah. I think about that sometimes. Like we did the Ben Stiller show in 1992, and people don't really ask about it. Right. But if they asked about it every day, I could see how you'd get irritated at some point. So take
1: us back, since we're talking about stand-up, and we're talking about your mom being uh, a hostess at Eastside, and now you you you, tr- you transition from yeah. dishwasher to busboy. Yes. How do you how do you get on stage for the first time?
2: Well, after doing all the interviews, right as senior year of high school ended. I started trying to do the open mic nights, and I would go on at Governors, and John Mulrooney would host. I remember, John and his Mulroney. whole thing was very violent. Crowd work. I mean, he would really rile them up and attack them. So he would get the crowd to, you know, to feel like they could insult him and then he would just decimate them, which was the worst environment to then go on next. <laughs> oh, yes. It was a terrible environment, but ultimately okay. And so I did that and then I got accepted to go to USC Film School and I would, I started booking shows around LA as a way to get stage time. And Sammy Shore opened a club in Marina Del Rey, Sammy's by the Shore, which is in the back of this Cas- Casola's of Fish House, Father, Father of Pauli, And he asked me to book the shows there. And so it was like on the weekends or Thursday through Sunday, and I would just host every show. And that's how I got stage time. It was from Sammy, who was really good to me. I remember opening night, Orson Bean came in. Oh, wow. And, and, uh, and was hysterical. Yeah. And everyone would, would go into that club, it was just the back of a... Fish House, but kind of set up decently, and then I got a job at Comic Relief when it first uh, started. So I had heard, oh, they're going to do the live aid for comedians, and I was in college, and I called them up, and I said, I will do anything. You called Smuda? I called uh, just anybody would Uh answer the phone. Uh And then four months later, they called me and said, yes, we need help. And so I was there at uh, the first four or five comic reliefs. I would just work in the office and my job was to get a poster signed by everyone in the show. Actually, like 50 posters and I'd have to, I had an excuse to walk up to everybody. You know, Dick Van Dyke and Carl Reiner and Wee uh, Herman was at the first one and Harold Ramis and Jerry Lewis. Oh, and I know, wow. And I always remember I was following Jerry Lewis to get him to sign the posters and there was like 20 camera people that wanted a picture with him and he was walking to the area to take pictures and one camera guy just wiped out really painfully hard and Jerry Lewis looks at him and goes you're supposed to fall pause then get up (laughs) You gotta wait for the laugh. (laughs) (laughs) But but uh, so I wasn't. I I would produce local comic relief benefits. I would call clubs around the country and ask them to donate a Monday night to to comic relief. But for about four years while I was trying to be a comedian, I had this job that paid me a few hundred bucks a week to help raise money for the homeless. And uh, and then at some point, I got in at the Improv in L.A and started working there
0: now when you wrote you when you you interviewed all these comics was there did you find a link between all the comedians that were made them similar yeah.
2: well i just uh you, you know i was about comedians the way people were about baseball i just was a fan of certain yeah. people so i really would track you or track Seinfeld and Michael Keaton I remember always being aware like I love this Michael Keaton guy and Andy Kaufman oh my god he's on Taxi and and I was from Long Island so I felt connected to everyone because so many people f- were from New York and Long Island and I was like I'm kind of like these guys like I-, I should be able to do this they're all from Massapequa or Mineola <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> or, many comics or, from or Long something. Island yeah so um, but people were very nice and I appreciated it and I think that's one thing I took from the interviews I interviewed Martin Short in 1984, and he was so nice to me that I remember thinking, "Oh, this is how you behave as a human being." Like this, like it was like a, a model. I would just think, "No one's ever been that cool to me. There's no reason why he should be. I'm just this like idiot kid with an enormous tape recorder from the AV Squad."
1: Ramis too, right?
2: Ra- yeah, yeah. Ramus yeah. was so nice. And yeah. Ramis, I knew he wrote jokes for comics. He used to write for Rodney. And he wrote jokes for Playboy magazine, and yeah. slowly he performed in Second City and, and then wrote movies and then directed movies. And I thought, oh, that seems like the career path. So I did learn major lessons from talking to these people. I remember uh, uh, Michael O'Donoghue I interviewed from Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, and he, in, and he just came back from running Saturday Night Live in about in 83 and he had just left and he was mad because he wanted to run the show into the ground you know he (laughs) he he wanted it to go down like a burning viking ship and and he got in trouble and ultimately fired for writing a script about fred silverman and it was the last days of fred silverman the head of nbc so he had in the sketch fred silverman dressed as hitler (laughs) Trying to think of shows that would save his job and all the shows were like uh, a game show called Look Up Her Dress and uh, we ask her a question and if she gets it wrong we look up her dress and he wrote it and it was 40 pages and they didn't even shoot it and he got fired just for writing it and so that was a really fun Yeah, the interview's in the book. It's interview. a fun one. Yeah, that's a great that was
1: one. A, when he came back, and he was,
2: the truth to that, I'd heard that he wanted to be
1: called Reich Marshal. that's what he wanted <laughs> yeah, exactly. He wanted his title to be when he I came did, back.
2: There was one the I didn't use, time. which was Harry Shearer, right when he left Saturday Night Live. I did an interview with him, like, right when he left. And uh, it was a great, angry interview about how he felt about it. And... So I tried to take as many lessons as I, as I could from it, and, I, and the response to the book has been like how I felt when I was 15. People are just tweeting me and just yeah. saying like, "Oh, this is life changing." So that's what I like about the book is a, it, It's also how to be a nice person because I think these are all people that we look up to just for how. Well, they that's the live. most inspirational part of the book. Yeah. I
1: mean, there are a couple of, there, are, there are a couple of recurring motifs. One is how many people say they went into comedy to get laid. Yes, it comes yes. up a lot.
2: I did not. I never even <laughs> thought about that. I- that was a big mistake
0: <laughs> on my part. <laughs> I quickly learned my lesson. <laughs> yes, I've, always,
1: I've always wanted to ask you that. I mean, you were obviously you know, born to this and a born performer yeah. your way, but that was never even a small motivation for you? I,
0: I had heard that – I've been hearing for years that there are certain cities you go to yes. Where comedians are rock stars, yes, and every girl wants to fuck you, and I'm I'm still <laughs> waiting to find that city. Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey, <laughs> back
2: when in the early 90s, used to say to me, "You always love any city in America where you got laid." You know, it doesn't matter like if it's a good city or a bad city. You're like Des Moines, Iowa. That is an amazing town. <laughs> well, that's funny.
1: But the psychology comes up a lot in the book of these guys, and the the Ramis chapter is fascinating because. He was a Buddhist, and he's yes. and, and and you've dabbled a little mm-hmm. bit mm-hmm. yourself. And he's talking about his life philosophy, you know, which I loved. Life is ridiculous, so why not be a good guy?
2: Yes, and that was a big thing for me to hear um, from Harold. That interview is—I I did interview him when I was sixteen, but the one in the book, I interviewed him at the Austin Film Festival right, one year, right? And. You know, he was a very rabbinical type of guy. He liked yeah. to talk about life, and he was very, uh, very smart. And, and he, he, yeah, he had a simple philosophy. I don't think he believed in God, and he just thought, all right, well, if God doesn't exist, I can just be like an asshole, or I can just be a nice guy. I guess I'd rather be a nice guy, and that's about it. And and then he saw life in those simple terms. Like, what can I do that would be positive? And, and when we did uh, year one with him, I mean, everyone was there just to listen to him because he was the guy that would tell you the great Belushi story and would tell you the great Bill Murray story every day. And so yeah, it was just a gift to sit at dinner with him. And he, and, and I, I like that one. The James Brooks interviews, I think, that was are really great, great, great. great. And the Mike Nichols interview and Larry Gelbart. Like, I like the a lot of the, the, the legends.
0: You know, I just remembered a Michael O'Donohue story after my yeah. season which failed miserably. Yeah, you guys just crossed paths because he came in yeah, and, yeah, and I, I Piscopo never ran was still there, yeah. Piscopo and Eddie. I, I failed. My season yeah. failed miserably. And so then they they brought in my, Michael O'Donohue back yeah. to beat the new cast <laughs> into shape. And I heard his big thing was he brought in a bunch of spray paint cans and told them to do graffiti all over the office? Because we're rebels. And I thought, oh yeah, this this is gonna help. Yeah.
1: It's in Judd's book. He also famously told off every cast member, just oh, to dress yes. them down as. as-
2: I think there was a section in the interview I didn't use where he listed everyone in the cast and why he thought they were terrible. And it was so <laughs> mean I didn't even yeah. put it in the book. But he <laughs> went through, for me, a child, and listed why he hated everybody on the show. Uh, but he was also very sweet to me. Uh, and, <laughs> and he wrote Scrooge. And he did write yeah. Scrooge. But one thing we have in common is when I was a kid, I was uh, obsessed with writing uh, celebrities and getting autographs, and and so I would sit in my room, and there would be these like books you can get in LA of just the address for ABC or yeah. whatever, and I would just every night write like a dozen letters just to see <laughs> who would who would respond. And I uh, I remember I got Paul Lin's autograph. Oh wow! <laughs> and and then I then I sent him another letter just to see if he would send me another well, one. Well, a young
0: boy writing
2: to him. Every time I would get the autograph, I would send another letter. And I would always get, so I have like tons of Paul Lynch autographs. And I remember I wrote uh, Andy Kaufman when I was a kid. And he sent an autograph picture, like, you know, and clearly he wrote it in his own hand. You know, To you, Judd. Thank you very much, Andy Kaufman. And then on the back of the 8x10, he wrote a letter. Nobody did that ever. Like he already Uh, gave me the autograph. On the back, he just wrote, "Dear Judd, thank you so so much for the letter. I really appreciate you liking me from your friend Andy Kaufman." And it was the sweetest thing uh, that anybody ever did. That whole time, like he signed both sides of the photo.
0: Yeah, because I I showed you in my house. I wrote a Get Well card to Lon Chaney Jr., yeah. <laughs> and I got a Wolfman picture back with his name. How old
1: were you when you did that?
0: Oh, my God. I was a kid. Yeah. And the, only, I, the only fan letter you ever sent? Uh, yeah, well, it was that one. I was always a big Lon yeah. Chaney, and I, I got it in Famous Monsters of Film Life. Yeah. They said he was sick. And then I got an address mm. on Jimmy Durante when he was wow. sick.
2: And then he sent you a, an autograph back. He, Yes. Oh, that was the best. I mean, I had everybody. And sometimes they'd be fake, you know, and you could tell like it was like an auto pen or or something. Steve Martin had a great autograph that he used to send, which is he had a letter, and it would uh, have, like, blank spaces where where the whole thing would be typed, but... Every once in a while, a word would be filled in to make it seem personal. So it would be like, <laughs> typed "dear," and then there would be like a line, and then in, in, in someone's handwriting it said, Judd. And uh, it was like, thank you so much uh, for being such a fan. I really need more fans like you in... And someone would write in, Woodbury, and, uh, <laughs> and then said, P.S., remember that weekend we spent in Rio looking at the in, girls. <laughs> Didn't
1: he famously used to give out a card that says, congratulations, you've had an encounter with Steve yeah. Martin? No, that's a,
2: a genius thing to do.
0: Yeah, he said, there's, there's no need for a photo or autograph. <laughs> you've just met. Uh, I had that happen. I met Mel
2: Blank. At the Magic Castle, oh, wow. yeah, and I was cool. a little kid, and he just had like the pre-written autograph photo in his pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so he had a stack. Oh, he had a stack oh, with him. Really? And Sandy Duncan was there that day too. I was like oh, wow. ten years old. Um, yeah, I remember walking up to Phil Silvers at a screening of 1941. Uh, yeah, no. I, that was always the most fun. You still have them? You keep them? All, I am just them? a total hoarder. I, yeah, I have yeah. every little scrap of paper. Every autograph. Oh yeah, you. Every Joyce Stewart autograph is she carefully counted.
1: She was. In, she was prominently
0: featured in Gilbert's Act. Oh yeah. <laughs> I just remembered a, a Jimmy Durante story. A yeah. friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, in Jimmy Durante's later years, he became a total recluse. Hmm and he and no one knew where he was no yeah. one ever saw him and and my friend found out where he lived yeah and knocked on his door and he goes who is it <laughs> and he goes uh, i i'd like to speak to jimmy Durante. and from and the other side of the door he is he ain't home <laughs> 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 <laughs>
2: Uh, I, see, I, I had a, a funny one like that where I was uh, with a friend and we were driving um, like motorcycles up on Mulholland in like 1985 <laughs> or 86 and, there's a, and we knew that's where Nicholson and Marlon Brando lived so we just stopped there because there's a view of the valley and then a, a little crappy car pulled up to the, uh, the gate and you hear a girl go, hey Jack, I'm here and then through the box you hear Nicholson's voice go, you can't come in unless you take your pants off. (laughs) Wow. And she's like, come on, Jack, open the gate. And then he finally opened the gate. And we thought... What were the chances that we would hear something like that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, then speaking of autographs, and since you're you're we're talking about Steve Martin, t- yes. tell the Steve Martin story from the book about when, when you found out where he lived when you were a kid. Well, it's a I good was. Story.
2: I mean, I was uh, 12 years old, and I knew where he lived, so I'd visit my grandmother, and I would always say, "Let's pass by Steve Martin's house." And he had this incredible white block house that with no windows, right? No windows, but yeah. on the inside, I guess it was all lights. But from the street, it just looked like a block of white, and so. We're driving by one day, and he's outside of his house. So I I grab a pen and a piece of paper, and I run out, and I said, Hey, Mr. Martin, can I have your autograph? And he said, No, I'm sorry. I can't sign autographs at my house which is a completely reasonable request. Like if someone walked up to my house, I would call the cops at this point. Like I, I'd, I'd be, then I'd be terrified that everyone was going to come. And like I totally get it. But at the time, I didn't get it at all. So I said, well, can you sign it in the street? And he said, no, I'm sorry. I, I'm like, I won't tell anyone where you live. And he's like, no, I really can because then a lot of people will come over. Uh, all very reasonable requests. And... I was so upset and I went home and I grabbed a legal pad and I wrote him this really long (laughs) diatribe (laughs) like, dear Mr. Martin, you are the funniest man in the world but you treat your fans like crap and you wouldn't live in that house if I didn't buy your records and your tapes and your book and if you do not send me an apology, I'm going to send your address to Homes of the Stars and you're going to have tour buses passing by 24 hours a day and then I put it in his mailbox just to be extra stalkery like, I know where you live (laughs) I don't even need a stamp. Uh, and then I didn't think about it. But I really was kind of devastated because I was so little that I, I didn't understand. And about three or four months later, I get a, a, something in the mail from Steve Martin, and I open it up, and it's a book of Cruel Shoes, this great humor book he wrote at the time. And it said, To Judd, I'm sorry I didn't realize I was speaking to the Judd Apatow. <laughs> And he underlined V. And that was 35 years ago. And I always say now uh, that I think the impact of it was that I thought, I must have made him laugh with that crazy letter. Because he didn't say, screw that guy. Because <laughs> I was trying to be funny. And I thought, oh, my God, I must have made him laugh. And I think it gave me some confidence to be in comedy because the guy that I loved more than anybody by far thought it was worth the time to send me this thing and so and then he's so funny about it because it's the most irritating story everyone always asks me about it and so I always tell it but I feel bad and I had a meeting with him once and someone made me tell the story and then afterwards they said Steve do you remember it that way and he says uh, actually in my memory I knocked on Judd's door (laughs) (laughs) and then we did a photo shoot for Vanity Fair where uh, I'm, uh, he has a tour bus outside of my house and I'm in a bathrobe <laughs> complaining. <20. laughs> and, and, uh, so that was one of the great moments ever was getting to take the photo with him because he's, he's still the greatest of all time.
1: And you memorized those albums, didn't you? I, I mean, mean beyond memorization, small. they were just yeah. in, yeah. in
2: my neurons. Yeah, uh, my too. Par- we used to go to South Carolina or North Carolina on vacation. It was a 14 hour drive and we would just run, let's get small and wild and crazy guy. The entire time. I didn't even know why it was funny. I just knew my whole family would laugh really hard at every single line in those records. And then The Jerk came out, and we were like, and now he's made the best movie yeah. of all time, which completely holds up. Every Yeah, I find it interesting
1: of. in the book, you ask him about The Jerk. And a couple of things is, one is he agrees that it holds up, but he can't watch it.
2: And I, I understand it's, that. I it's very yeah. hard to watch anything you do. I, I mean, it is, It is. I, I get that. There's a lot of things of mine that are like I, I won't seek out to watch but also his book Born Standing Up is probably the best book ever written about comedy it really is uh, it really captures all of it, and it's a great story and beautifully written and he was nice enough to do an interview for the book Yeah, I don't know if I handled that interview well because I was just so excited and nervous that I, I don't know if I got to everything I, I wanted to get to but he was very very nice to me and, and I think it's a great interview
0: what goes through your mind when you watch one of your movies after the fact yeah You know, sometimes I watch it and I really laugh. And other times I watch and go, was
2: I crazy? Why did I think anyone would understand what I'm talking about here? Because every movie happens in that moment of your life. You're trying to express something that you're feeling right then. And then 10 years later, you don't feel that way anymore. So, you know, when we did Funny People, um, I was writing it when my mom had cancer And I was noticing that when she thought she was going to die, she seemed much happier than when the doctors would say, oh, the new medication is working. And then she'd get very neurotic and have all these worries about life again. But when she thought life was about to end, she was super loose and funny and just seemed at peace in a way she never was in life. So I started writing about that. And then she died before we shot the movie. So I was very traumatized while we were making the movie. And just expressing all those emotions. So then it becomes hard to watch later because it's just so personal to a specific feeling that I had well,
1: at the time. you remember where you were, and it brings back – every movie yes. has to do that, too. Sure. It has to bring There's back that time of your life. There's about
0: like, movies that I know, like, when you watch a movie, you go, oh, God, when I was doing that scene – I was in a really lousy mood that yes. wasn't, yeah.
2: Sure, there's certain scenes that are the funniest scene in the movie, and it was the worst day. Yeah. And you didn't even think you had it, or you just shot it, and it just seemed like, oh, this is going to be terrible. And then other there's other scenes you remember, oh, shooting that was the most fun ever. Like shooting the drunk driving sequence with my wife Leslie. We shot it over three or four days. We just laughed every second. Everything she was doing was killing us. Everything Steve Carell was doing, being terrified of her as the drunk driver, seemed so funny. But then other days, you just, you barely you barely get through it.
0: You know, I, it's funny what you were saying about your mother, because I remember hearing that when people finally decide mm. they're gonna commit suicide, they're usually at their calmest and happiest. Yeah. Like they've made a decision.
2: Sure, yeah. I think uh, I think there's something to it. And I always wonder... I mean, here's the thing. You make a movie, you never can watch it and know how other people feel when they watch it because you've thought about it so much. And so all the ideas in a movie like Funny People, which was so important to me, I'll never know unless people tell me if it affected them. Even the ideas about, you know, a comedian who was so obsessed with succeeding that he really never developed the ability to have normal friendships and normal relationships, which, you know, was based on a lot of people that we all know who you see just struggle. Uh, We thought about Rodney a lot. Oh, yeah. Because we all loved Rodney so much. But Rodney would go on stage at like two in the morning in a bathrobe and he'd say to the crowd, you know, sometimes life makes perfect sense and then you come. You know? And, and,
1: and,
2: and it was so dark and the crowd was like, why isn't he doing the normal jokes? And I thought that was an interesting thing to explore, you know, a young comedian dealing with this guy and his life isn't working out. Because there's very few movies about comedy that are any good. And so I thought, oh, it'd be nice to try to think capture that.
0: It's hard to think, of, hard
2: to think of any.
0: There, there was that... Uh, the one that missed, got everything yeah. wrong, was the Tom Hanks one. Oh, oh yeah. Punchline, yeah. Punchline, but yeah. you
2: know what's so funny? Everyone was so mad because in that movie, all the comedians had lockers. Yes. Right? And, so, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it drove everyone crazy. Like, we don't get a locker. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we go to the Comedy Magic Club in Hermosa Beach, which is one of the main clubs I always worked at, a great comedy club in California, to scout it, to shoot there. And when we get there, we see there's a whole wall of lockers. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: that's funny! <laughs>
2: <sighs>
1: what about something like this? Is 40? I mean, is that hard for you to watch for another reason? Because there's so much personal stuff in there. Uh, well,
2: and- you know, some of that stuff is just a time capsule to me. So my daughter's 17 now. My other yeah. daughter's 12. Yeah. And so the fact that they're in all these movies from the time they're very little, I'm so happy that they exist, and and I can see how they talked and how they behaved. So in a lot of ways, it's just very expensive home movies. Right, I was just going to say. <laughs> Sometimes on the DVDs, I'll take all the raw footage and all the outtakes, and I'll make like a 10-minute montage of my kids. And I know no one on earth wants to see it. But now it's digitally protected somehow. And when I'm older, I, I can watch those things. So I, and I really like working with them because Leslie and my kids are really funny. And they're so, really funny it, in the movie. It, yeah. For
1: anybody that hasn't seen this, is for which we met at yeah. the View, and I was yeah. telling you and Leslie how, how natural I thought they both were.
2: Yeah, they're really great. And Maude was on Girls this year, and Iris is on this show Love that we're doing for Netflix. And so hopefully, I don't know. We'll see if they want to do it or don't want to do it. But they're really fun to do it with. Like, those are actually easy times. to, to Now, make those if things. you'll
0: tell this story, okay. <clears throat> When I first brought you mm-hmm. into the apartment, yes. I was showing you some life masks. Yes. I have of, you know, Lon Chaney, Baila. Oh, Gose I can't even. tell this story. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I
0: know I can't tell this story. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> that one gets me in trouble. Well, then,
0: can you at least tell me who has to see your dick? <laughs> You gotta. There's gotta be a give and take. I think. I,
1: I on think I got it show. figured out. Do you? Yeah, but,
2: but I'm gonna. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say. Um, no matter what you say, I'm gonna say that's not him. But say it again, and I'll. I'll, I'll, I'll. Was there an animated series based on his life? No. Who's that? No. Well,
0: that. that that's. I so know. Like that, I know exactly. You know where I'm going? He
2: didn't. He didn't uh, succeed to that level. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> I don't want to incriminate anybody so unfairly.
0: So if, if he didn't succeed to that level, you should have at least shown him your dick. <laughs> yeah, throw you know? guy had at least that? Yes. <laughs> now, now we were talking before that in your book, you were talking to Albert Brooks. Yes, and he had a great Jack Benny story. He did. I think you.
2: Oh, I could. I oh, could read it oh, if you want re- me to, because oh, I can't they, remember it. It's up when they were on
1: the Tonight Show together.
2: I don't know if you've <laughs> heard this. Uh, I, I, someone showed me these letters that Jack Benny wrote with this famous uh, producer. And uh, they would like kind of trade jokes back and forth. And, uh, th- and in uh, this letter, they were talking about new shows and how television was changing. And Jack Benny wrote in his letter, yeah, I love this new show, My Mother the Cunt. <laughs> 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 but it's wild that it was typed and signed, Jack Benny, and... <laughs> Because all those guys were so clean, but privately filthy. Right. And uh, I laughed. Sorry.
1: I'll I'll, I'll, I'll read it. It's just a little little bit about how Albert Brooks was on The Tonight Show with with Benny. And it's it's Um, actually kind of a sweet story.
2: Let me see. He says... um, Albert Brooks is talking about um, how he did this this bit... uh, He took a live frog, and I put it through all these elephant (laughs) tricks. And every time he did a trick, I threw a peanut at him. And the last trick, I said, I call this the trick, find the nut boy. I gave the peanut to somebody on stage. I walked over and gave it to Doc Severinsen. The elephant will find the peanut. I took this frog. I threw this huge uh, black cloth over him, the one I said I used to blindfold the elephant. And this black rag started hopping all over the place, so it eventually hopped over to Doc Severinsen. It actually found him. (laughs) I don't know what the hell the frog was going to do. So after the bit, I sit down at the panel and Jack Benny was on. It was always that last two minutes where Johnny was asking people, thank you for coming, what do you have coming up? And during the last commercial, Jack Benny leaned over to Johnny Carson and said, when we get back, ask me where I'm going to be, will you? So they came back. Johnny said, I want to thank Albert. Jack, where are you going to be performing? And Jack Benny said, never mind about me. This is the funniest kid I've ever seen. And it was this profound thing, like, oh, that's how you lead your life. Be generous, and you can be the best person who ever lived.
0: Wow. It's a nice story. I have never heard a bad thing about Jack Benny.
2: People love him more than anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Every, like Wall to wall, he's probably the most beloved person.
1: Everybody that we've had on the show that had any dealings with him at all. Just said how generous he was. Yeah,
0: you to, see to people's other faces warm up who've worked with him. And in comedy, it's so
2: hard because a guy like Jack Benny—he's making decisions constantly that affect people. He had to fire people. He had to decide this script was good or this actor or actress was good or needed to be fired. And so it's always very weird that you can navigate sh- running shows and big operations and not have disgruntled people uh, in your past.
1: The other cool thing in the Albert Brooks interview is that is the, I, I never knew he hung out with Harry Nielsen and John Lennon, that two of the Hollywood amazing. vampires.
2: And he talked about yeah. them going to a record store, buying yeah. all the Albert Brooks records, and then driving down Sunset Boulevard and just throwing them right. <laughs> at people like on the streets. <laughs> 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 I mean, it was great just to get Albert uh, to do the interview. He's hilarious. Uh, yeah.
1: and the, the, the Jew card and the whole thing in This yes. is 40 is so funny.
2: I mean, when we did the This is 40, Albert, every night before we shot a scene, he would... Uh, Email me incredible lines that were way better than anything I wrote, and just that was just a you know a dream because he really is an incredibly funny person, but also a brilliant actor. This is you know I think one of the oh, great yeah. actors uh, uh, of all time, and if you look at that sequence in uh, um, Broadcast News where he has a big confrontation with Holly Hunter, I mean to me. I don't think it gets better. It's than wonderful. That. Is, as Where he as says Tom
1: else. is the devil while yes. being a very nice guy. Yeah. It's a wonderful scene. Yeah, it's a wonderful Amazing. movie that people don't it's talk a perfect about.
2: Perfect
0: movie. Now, were you friends with Andy Kaufman in those days? Uh, I I never spoke to him. Yeah. I remember he would come in. Yeah, I I remember him going up on stage and he did, uh, you know, a hundred <laughs> bottles of beer on the wall and just the entire from a hundred to one. But uh, yeah, no, I never spoke yeah. to him. I remember Freddie Prince. Really? Uh, not, I never spoke to him either. He was already known yeah. back then, but he was. When did you
2: start talking it. to people?
0: <laughs> did you hear the Steve Buscemi episode?
2: <laughs> no.
1: Steve Buscemi was trying out stand up. Gilbert was successful at that point. Steve Buscemi was nobody. They get in a cab together, and Steve's thinking, well, he's a successful comic, he's going to pick up the cab. And Gilbert never went into his
0: pocket. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't even talk to
1: him. (laughs) I didn't talk to him the entire ride. So (laughs) I'm no Jack
0: Benny. No. (laughs) (laughs) Now, years ago, this is a connection we have. Years ago, I was watching TV, and Mm I'm switching around. I can't watch anything for longer than five minutes. And George of the Jungle was on. That's true. Yes. And your wife, Leslie Mann, Mm -hmm. was in it. And I remember, I thought, "Oh, she's like skinny, cute, and funny." Mm-hmm. And I, uh, this is absolutely true. I remember saying, "Boy, I could see myself fucking her." <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> That's both a compliment and terrible. Yeah, lassie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm both outraged, and I'll tell her, and she'd love to know. Yeah. So, how do you think you think she would? Would she be excited yeah, about that? Yeah, I mean, send the kids out of town. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no I'm gonna tell. Them, I'm going to tell her with the kids there. (laughs) You know that bird you love from that movie? Hilarious. I thought that bird would be my selling point.
1: Tell us about working with Leslie. I mean, Uh, and what it's like. I mean, I'm reading reading in the book how she makes makes contributions. Well, she's
2: she's so funny and so smart. And, you know, as a woman in Hollywood, there's... So few good scripts. There's probably more now. But when I first met Leslie in the mid-90s, uh, you know, every woman in a movie was just there to be you know, wanted by a guy. And they were just getting you know, guys from point A to point B. And so you know, we used to talk a lot about just how weak all these parts were. And it had a big influence on me. I did a pass on The Wedding Singer, just a polish. And I remember thinking... I want to see how good I can make this Drew Barrymore part, and it was uh Ignore was that like a great phone. Jim. Oh, that's right. Uh, and it was uh, you know a challenge to try to change that. And so uh, over the years, Leslie and I have uh, you know collaborated in all these movies, and she's really tough on him. Funny, and she asks really hard questions about these relationships and how they work and how we can have balance. And she's been a real partner. And then. I think it inspired me to want to work with Lena Dunham and Amy Schumer and Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo because there are some brilliant women. And I think now you see uh, a lot more opportunities, uh, which is great. I mean, because, I mean, what Amy Schumer does in Trainwreck is unbelievable. She's a, an amazing writer and actress. And we, we, don't, we shouldn't have one train wreck. We should have 50 train wrecks. I mean, you're, you're sort of
1: like becoming a George Cukor of, of comedy, like, a, a, in a way. Well, I like... A, a, uh, a, I mean, a,
2: a woman's director. Well... A little bit. Well, you know, the, here's the funny thing. And producer. There, there's so many areas in comedy that are burnt out, and you feel like, oh, that vein has been used up, that type of story has been told. And oddly, because there hasn't been anywhere near enough female stories, when you start writing in that area, it's all fresh. And so, you know, Lena can write five seasons of Girls, and you, you think, I haven't seen any of this before because there's not a hundred shows like it.
1: Especially in a reverent movie like Bridesmaids, that, that yeah. people aren't used to comedy like that ed- really edgy comedy sure. coming from women.
2: Because I look back and go, don't you wish there were ten brilliant Gilda Radner movies that we could all go back and look at? But the material wasn't there. However the system worked, it certainly didn't support... The Jane Curtin, Lorraine yeah. Newman, Gilda Radner movies, or 10 the brilliant Andrew, Lily m- Tomlin movies, or even. The, the Andrew Martin, Catherine O'Hara movies yeah, we'd, right. we would have liked to have, like in the early 80s. I mean, all those people went on to do a lot of amazing things, but I think the system was much more difficult uh, to navigate, and they didn't go to those people and say, Here, write a script. What are your visions? And I think they do that. A little more now. And now that Trainwreck did well, you just hope it's another signal. This is a giant market because they only chase the money. So you go, oh, there's a market there. Just like there's a superhero market, there's a great female-driven movie market. And we should, you know, they only do it because they want to tap it for money. So you just hope the incentive is there now. For Gilbert to make the best female-driven comedy (laughs) with
1: Because no one has a more female friendly act than Gilbert
0: uh, 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 uh,
1: uh. so you want to wrap it up? you have anything else you want to ask this man?
0: Uh, yeah, do you think your wife would make out with me and then give me a hand release afterwards? Uh,
2: who's the director in that film, or is this <laughs> this, uh, this is a project uh, are, you, are you pitching a movie right now? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I want to ask you about upcoming projects before we jump. You, you're doing a film with Key and Peele?
2: Uh Yes, me and uh, Key and Peele are writing a movie together, and uh, you know I'm excited to get that uh, done at some point. I mean, they're funny they're himself. really incredible and funny and brilliant, and and obviously you know the next step for them will be to you know do in movies what uh, Amy has just done. Can you tell us anything about the Pee Wee project? The Pee Wee project. Well, I I really encourage him to do something in the tradition of. Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And he really wrote a hilarious movie with Paul Russ, this guy John Lee, who, who's done a lot of amazing stuff, um, uh, like uh, Heart She Holler and uh, Adult Swim uh, productions. And it's really out there and super funny. And I think what people hope he's going to do, he has just done.
0: It's weird. Uh, Pee-wee Herman in so many interviews, has said he auditioned for Saturday Night Live. In what year? Uh, wow, well, I didn't know uh, that. For the same season I was. Oh, in 1980, wow. And and he said when he saw me there, uh, he thought that meant, well, I definitely don't have this because we're both like kind of character comics.
2: Oh, Interesting. I uh I because that's before Pee-wee even took off. Yeah. That was a few years later. Yeah, he didn't have that whole uh persona. Back he hadn't then. he hadn't done it yet. He well, was still Paul Rubens. There's so many people uh who didn't get Saturday Night Live. Just the other day, me and my daughters, I don't know why they wanted to, but my twelve year old wanted to go on YouTube and watch all the Saturday Night Live auditions. Oh, jeez. A- and they have Jim Carrey's audition and my daughter was livid afterwards. She's like <laughs> Why do you not give that guy Saturday Night (laughs) Live? So funny. And then other people's auditions were up who got the show and some who were very successful. And she's like, they got on over Jim. (laughs) (laughs) What did you do? 11 episodes?
0: Oh yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. and I, Judd remembers them. Judd is one of the few comedy oh, God. geeks you,
0: who would I remember, I remember them. Oh, this so is excited. frightening.
2: With Denny yeah. Dillon, yeah. I was Denny Dillon was very funny. Yes. She did some, of, and also Gail Mathias was very funny. Wow, she yeah. did one of the first uh, Valley Girl characters. Yes, that's, correct. that's it's the something. first yeah. time
0: anyone ever heard of Valley Girl. Yeah, and I all of the, so. I
2: mean Charles Rocket I thought was really funny, and Christine Ebersole yeah. went on to have a, a career. Oh, well, she wasn't a, mine. Oh, she wasn't your season. Who was
1: the third girl? I got it.
2: Uh, it was Demetra Vance. Demetra, no, she was no, later. that was later. later. Oh wow! I know. Damn it! Chud, think. I think. think I think, Judd think. Uh Give me the first letter of her.
0: Uh, A. I don't got it. A R.
2: I don't have it. I can see her in my. Uh, she's blonde. No. And I, I can see her. What's her it name? Anne Risley. Uh, yes, 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 yes. I, I, I remember her, but...
0: And, the name. Uh, and well, of course, Eddie Murphy. Was Tony Rosado on that? No, uh, no. He no. came
1: later. I think he came yeah. with Eversol later.
0: Uh, Rosado, yeah. 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 Who I heard went nutty. I uh, hear he's back. I just yeah.
2: oh. Here's what a comedy nerd I am. I've read all the Tony Rosado articles.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's serious. I
2: literally went down the Tony Rosado rabbit hole the other day <laughs> oh my and gosh. tracked... A, some of his uh, obstacles, and I, I hear he's doing well now. But he was he was super super funny.
1: Is it true you trans- used to transcribe SNL episodes or Twilight Zone
2: episodes? Well, well, both. But Saturday Night Live, you know, be- before you could record things on your your VCR, your Betamax. The only way to, to remember it, it was, was I would record it with an audio recorder. And then sometimes I would transcribe a sketch just to understand what it was. Like, what did I just see? How does it, how does it work? But I did have them on uh, audio for a little while. And you never knew. I didn't understand how reruns worked. So if Steve Martin was on Saturday Night Live, I thought, if I miss it, I will never see it again for the rest of my life. And that's not what anything is like now. But right. back then, you'd be in a panic if oh, you missed yes, something. yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I used to try to track them.
0: Now, what do you remember from my season? <laughs> just, this, this fascinates cause I because that's something I can't watch. What is the main sketch my... you remember of your okay, own? Okay, well, one that was truly horrible. Uh, where, where, where was, wasn't the worst sketch. It was just one of those where you scratch your heads and go, okay, what? what is the fucking point here? Yeah. was called Jack the Stripper. Oh, that's online. That's on YouTube. Yeah, that's a bad one.
2: (laughs) Now, here's my question. Because when you go back and look at the writers, there was a lot of legendary people uh, on that season and on the next season. Who screwed it up? I don't know. Is it, it was, is it Gene Dominion picking the sketches? Or is it, like, who is the person that doesn't know what to do with you?
0: I, I don't know, but I remember some truly hard. And and also, back then, I, I didn't realize at read-throughs, when I'd hear something and I'd hear everyone cracking up, I used to think, oh, well, this means I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand why this is funny. Yeah. And and now, you know, people go uh, in a read-through, hi, everybody, and everyone's <laughs> laughing and pounding the table. Did who was you- the head writer?
1: Oh, Do you remember, no, like, I who you dealt was with? Was it Bob Tischler?
0: Uh, no, no, he came with He probably
1: with came with
2: EverSol. Did saw. Did, uh, did you have any writers you especially liked trying
0: no, to write it, with? No, it got so bad at one point that they... Wrote me into a sketch as a corpse. It was a funeral scene. Did, didn't you and Denny Dillon play an,
1: an elderly Jewish couple? Oh uh,
0: yes, yes, the Waxmans.
1: The Waxmans. Leo
0: and um, I forget her name? And yeah.
1: then you did. Well, Malcolm McDowell was in the was in the Jack the Ripper
2: sketch. Oh yes. But you're doing a Cockney accent.
0: Yes. Did <laughs> yeah.
2: you? Was there one sketch that you thought killed? And I'm no. really getting it. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, when it ended, uh, so were you saying that you were fired mid-season?
0: Yeah, I was fired. They had just begun work on the very last episode. It was going to be with Graham Chapman. Oh, yes. I I have a good Graham Chapman
2: story. Oh, okay. Just when I was in college, he was a speaker at USC, and I was in charge of the speakers committee, and me and a friend hung out with him and um, his associate, oh whatever that meant, and uh, and we, we smoked pot all night with him, I was like 18 years old, and he told us stories for what felt like hours and he talked to us like we were on the same level as him. And we were just two kids, we meant nothing. And he told his stories about going to whorehouses with Keith Moon and every story had Paul McCartney or, you know, somebody incredible in it and was a complete gentleman and the nicest man I'd ever met. And it was maybe the best night of my entire college experience. Wow. Uh, but I always remembered, wow, he seemed as interested in our stupid college life as we were in the brothel with Keith Moon story. And, uh, and then I was trying to get a job working for him on a, he was doing a thing called the Dangerous uh, Men's Club or something. It was these guys, they would, you know, ride like a bed down a very steep uh, ski hill. It was like the original Jackass. Yeah. Him and a bunch of guys oh, would wow. do yes. incredibly dangerous things. And he was going to make a movie about it. And then he got sick and, and, and passed away. Top that, Gilbert. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> well, a show, that was a very funny show. That's story. a show-ender.
2: <laughs> Tell us real quick, and we'll
1: go about the Jim Henson, what Jim Henson told you. Because obviously, I read it in the, uh, the interview with you and Leslie in the book. Uh, well, uh, how you made, it, it helped you make the transition from performing to writing?
2: Well, I, yeah. I always knew that I wasn't as funny as a comedian as my friends like Jim Carrey and, and, and Adam Sandler. And then you know all of our friends like Rob Schneider and Drake Sather and David Spade. They were just really interesting as comics. And I uh, auditioned to host a show with Adam Sandler that Jim Henson was producing back in 1990 or something. And it was he wanted a couple of comedians to travel across country with their own video cameras and videotape each other. It was right when America's Funniest Videos started, and that was the craze, like, home video. So I get a call that I didn't get it, but Jim Henson wants to buy all my ideas for the show. And then they said he doesn't want you on the show because he thinks you lack warmth. And and I thought, this is a guy who can make like two ping pong balls into a magical, warm creature, but he doesn't think it's possible to do with me. And uh, I I tell this story and I say, you know, uh, it's like if Mr. Rogers said you don't deserve love. (laughs) But then I thought, is there any chance that... This actually happened. Like, do you did Jim Henson literally sit with a casting director and just say well, don't forget to call Judd uh, you, know, you know, I want to give him some feedback. Can you tell him that he lacks warmth? <laughs> like, I don't think he I would, would help say you, that. Help you learn to read. Yeah, but it was one of the reasons why I stopped performing was these kind of things kept happening that were so brutal. But Sandler didn't get the job either, or David Spade, or Rob Schneider. Uh, we all auditioned for it, but it, it certainly really uh, was painful.
0: Well, I guess...
1: We like to end the show with yeah. a painful story yeah. when we yeah. can. Okay. Tell, so you, Tell us real quick about the book, where the book of the proceeds yeah. go to.
2: Sick of the Head goes to 826, which uh, is a charity that provides free tutoring and literacy services to kids. And when I sold it, I said, okay, then we'll give all the money to those guys. And I really didn't think they would sell it for much. And then they sold it for a shitload of money. <laughs> and... It was too late to say, okay, how about 5% of the proceeds? <laughs> and then it, it was on the New York Times bestseller list for the first, like, month. I think it still is on it. And so it really has turned into a, a miscalculation of charitable giving.
1: <laughs> Your parents so, would be so ashamed. I know. exactly I, I
2: know.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> And the movie is Trainwreck. Yes, the movie is uh, well. Trainwreck, which is doing well, thank, thank God.
0: Okay, so this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we've been talking to writer, producer, and filmmaker, and comedian Judd Apatow. Thank you. Thank you, Thanks, sir. Judd.
1: Thanks for doing Pleasure. it.
2: Pleasure.
0: Get the new Foscam C1
1: indoor Wi-Fi security camera because it's a reliable solution for indoor surveillance of your home or office. To learn more, go to www.foscam.us slash c1, where you'll be directed to our Amazon page. And for a limited time, use the code GILCAST, that's G I L C A S T 1, to get $10 off. You'll love that too. Yes. Per camera. Again, the website is FOSCAM, F O S C A M dot us slash the letter C and the number
0: 1. Watch what you love anywhere.